indeed, Lord. That's what I pray you would allow us to end the year with and, and begin the new year with. Humility about our sin, our sorrow that you saved us from, that we were so undeserving of your grace, and yet you have poured it out on us so richly, more than we could comprehend. Please let that be the, the tone with which we begin this new year. Complete awe and love and adoration and humility that you would save such undeserving sinners. Especially, Lord, as, as we look at this beautiful passage in Titus this morning that does depict how we were so lost and foolish and deceived and wicked, but you poured out on us every grace. You have put your own spirit in our hearts. Please open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to, uh, to see and believe and love this wonderful truth. Fill us with joy. Fill us with love for our fellow brothers and sisters who have been saved in the same way, and also for the lost world who is just as miserable as we once were, who does not know your redeeming grace, who is missing the whole point of the universe. Please help us love them and care for them and show them kindness in this coming year, Lord. Please help us. Please teach us. Amen. May I have a seat? And uh, you can turn your Bible to the book of Titus for the penultimate time. Penultimate is kind of a weird word. It's not really a time you have to use it, so I like to use it whenever I can. Uh, it's the second to last time we're in Titus. Um, I'll be preaching again next Sunday. Uh, so this morning we've got Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Uh, most of the book of Titus, uh, as it being a pastoral epistle, that is uh, an epistle that Paul wrote to someone who was in a pastoral role over the churches in Crete, it's largely a book about life within the church, within uh, the church body, how to uh, interact with each other, with our leaders. Uh, this passage, though, here, uh, Paul kind of turns a little bit to talk about how we as Christians should live, act towards sinners, towards the unbelieving world. And so let's go ahead and read now then Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. What is a, a truly beautiful passage as well. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, this passage is about how do we as sinners conduct ourselves, or how do we as believers conduct ourselves in a world of sinners? How do the righteous deal with the unrighteous? How are the good to deal with the evil? How should we think and feel and act towards those in our society who have completely 
evil morals, those who promote the slaughter of children in the womb, those who promote every form of sexual debauchery, how should we feel about them? How should we act towards them? Closer to home, uh, what should we do with your coworker whose vices make your job harder, who's a pain in your side? How should you respond to him? How should you act towards him? Even closer, what should you do with a father, a mother, husband, wife, son, daughter, who returns your love and kindness with neglect, abuse, and selfishness? How do you deal with the unbelieving world? Paul answers this question here in this passage by, most of all, giving us the example of how God dealt with us when we were sinners. How do we deal with sinners, with unbelievers, with people who are mean and cruel and selfish to us? Paul says, well, deal with them the same way God dealt with you. That is, show them compassion and kindness. He did not destroy us. He was patient with us and poured out his blessings upon us. Put it a different way, we are to confront sinners with compassion, not combat. As uh, that old hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal, puts it, For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. And in this topic, it's perpetually relevant for Christians. We will always have unbelievers in our life. We will always have sinners who harm us, who oppose us. And that never is, uh, it's never nothing. It, It hurts. It's painful. It's trying. It's frustrating. You know this. And so, the morality of the New Testament that we are to love our enemies and be kind and patient to them, it's always challenging to us, and it's always pertinent. But I think this passage is even especially relevant today. In America today, there's a lot more public antagonism towards Christianity than there was 10 years ago, 25 years ago, especially as you go on and on. This country is at war with each other about many things. We are very divided And we're very intense with our divisions. And many of these divisions are over matters central to Christian faith and practice. And so I think even more than usual, we feel the sin of the unbelieving world around us. We feel their opposition. We see the heinousness of what they do. How should we feel and act towards them? Point number one, it covers verses one and two, is is that question. Conduct in the midst of sinners. How should we live among them? And the first thing that Paul says that we should be uh, in the midst of sinners is we should be good citizens. Uh, You notice there in verse 1, he starts off by saying, remind them. As in, this isn't a new doctrine that Paul's teaching. This is established New Testament teaching. Christians submit to the government. Uh, They are good citizens. And this was very important because in the ancient world, there was a unity between religion and politics. The ancient pagan cult of the Roman gods, it was basically one with the Roman government. Uh, In people's minds, the reason that they obeyed the Roman government is because the Roman gods put them there. It was one and the same. There was no division between religion and politics. Therefore, Christians, they would have naturally come under suspicion. If these people don't worship the same gods we do, why would they obey our government? Why would they obey our emperor who's been put there by the Roman gods? They were going to be suspicious of Christians that they would be some kind of zealous, politically revolutionary group. But they're not. No, our our allegiance to Christ, to the true King of Kings, it doesn't 
divert our obedience and submission to the pagan rulers. It actually reinforces it because, as Romans 13 teaches, even the pagan rulers are instruments of God's rule on earth. And so, while our doctrine and our morality in Christianity are indeed revolutionary, they are different, they are a light in a dark world, we're not political revolutionaries. We are seeking a kingdom that is not of this world, and so we don't go and overthrow the government and break the laws. That's not our role. Furthermore, that this uh, idea that we as Christians need to be good citizens is relevant too, because as we've seen throughout Titus, we as Christians are called to a higher calling. We have new life in the Spirit. We have been given a divine law from God. This uh, moral superiority, though, uh, it could lead people to think that they are then above the laws that surround them with the pagan government. They can think that they can do what they want because they have been uh, regenerated by the Spirit and know God's law in their heart, but that's not the case. Even though we have been, uh, had our eyes open to God's true law, uh, we know how to be good, we can be good, we still need to obey the laws of Hawaii, the laws of the United States of America. So that's what Paul says. We are to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. We are to be obedient. And then there's a final phrase there in verse 1 that I, I believe is connected also to this idea of being a good citizen. And that's that we are to be ready for every good work. We're not just a merely passive obedience to the government. We also want to be prepared. We want to do good. We genuinely care uh, about our city, our state, our country. And uh, you, you can think about it. The kind of first thing that you share with the unbelievers in your life is you share with them a, a common citizenship. Uh, you share with them a responsibility to uphold uh, the laws of the state, to uh, pay your taxes, all these kinds of things. You share this with the unbelieving world. If this one and most immediate thing that you share with them, you don't care about, if you uh, rebel, if you denigrate that thing you hold in common, being fellow citizens of the United States of America, fellow inhabitants of the island of Oahu, if you disdain that, what's that going to tell the world? It's going to estrange you from them. If that one thing that you hold in common most of all you don't care for, it's going to kind of alienate you from them. But if this one, even somewhat superficial thing that you both have in common, if you care about it, if you work towards it, if you show that you are concerned and conscientious, I think you will, in general, ingratiate yourself to these unbelievers. You show that you care about them, even in this one area of overlap of your common citizenship. So that's the first thing we're supposed to do, uh, conduct our, how we are to conduct ourselves as believers in the midst of sinners, is we're to be good citizens. The next thing Paul says, and a number of uh, imperatives here, is we are to be good and kind. That's how I'd summarize it. And Paul uses a few phrases to describe this. First of all, he says to speak evil of no one. That just basically means don't slander. The literal word in Greek is don't blaspheme. That means to not speak of people in a disrespectful way that demeans or denigrates. Uh, you can slander somebody in all kinds of different ways. It can be by saying false things. It can be by saying partially false things. It can even be by saying true things. You can slander somebody. You can speak evil of somebody. We're not to do that. We are to be respectful in the things we say about people. And that doesn't mean that we can never say anything negative about anyone. Paul himself has said negative things about the false teachers, about Cretans in this letter. It just means that when we say uh, negative things, we're not saying it in an unjust or underhanded way, attempting to 
bring someone down behind their back or ruin their reputation. That's not our role in society. Uh, The people of the world are going to do many evil and foolish things, and it's not our job to go around and destroy their reputation. Next thing Paul says is to avoid quarreling. Uh, We're not to provoke sinners into fights, and when we are provoked, we should seek to maintain the peace. And then third, and then this is one of the most key phrases, I think, here, is that we are to be gentle. Of course, as Christians, we care about love and we care about the truth. And sometimes these things can seem to be at tension. When we have to deliver the painful truth to sinners, when we need to tell them that what they're doing is wrong and leading to hell, when we have to show them that they are leading an unfulfilled and destructive life, when we have to deliver this truth, we don't do it in a harsh way. We do it in a gentle way. We try and minimize the pain that this truth is going to bring without sacrificing its power. What's gentleness? Gentleness is what you want your surgeon to have. You want him to make every cut necessary, but nothing more. It's the same thing with the way we speak to people. Tell them what they need to know. Tell them the truth. Warn them. But don't take any pleasure in hurting them, and certainly do everything you can to minimize the pain that's going to come from this truth. Don't say anything unnecessarily. Be careful. Be conscientious. And this is important because there are many today, uh, even Christians, who say the right things, believe the right things, say even things that need to be said, but they say it in a wrong way. They indeed enjoy triggering people who disagree with them. They like seeing them get upset. They like hurting their feelings. They like embarrassing them. They are provocative. They exaggerate. They mock. They are crude. They are rude. That's not what we are to be as Christians. We are to be gentle. Yes, we tell the truth, and indeed we have a love for sharing the truth. We're not ashamed of it, but we also care about people. And if you just go around throwing the truth without thinking about how it's going to affect people, you're just being lazy or apathetic. As Christians, we are to be gentle in our delivery of the truth. And the final phrase there in verse 2, it says, we are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Uh, Paul, indeed, he, he intensifies both of them. He says, all courtesy and to everyone. Every person we are act to act towards with respect. We are never to act arrogantly to an unbeliever. We are never to lord ourselves over them. We are never to condescend in a disrespectful way. Everybody, all the time, deserves our respect and courtesy. And to just kind of wrap up this brief section here, of course, as we're interacting with an unbelieving world, the most important thing we should do is tell them the gospel. We can't love them. We can't be kind to them. We can't be courteous and compassionate and respectful (coughs) without telling them how they can be saved. And I think the reason that it's so hard for us as Christians to be kind and gentle to unbelievers is because we as humans, and especially as Christians, we care about justice. We care about what is right. We genuinely do, and it's a good thing. But because we care about what is right and just and fair, it bothers us when people do things that are wrong. And being sinners, we feel like it's our obligation to punish the people who do wrong. Again, that love of justice and fairness is good, but what we need to constantly remind ourselves is that while justice is incredibly important, it's not our responsibility as Christians in our personal relationships 
to bring about punishment on people. That's not our job. It's important. God or the government ought to punish wrongdoing. But it's not your job. I want my my son to care about what's right. I want him to know what's the difference between right and wrong. But I don't want him to go and punish his sister. That's not his job. That's my job. It's the same way God feels about us. He wants us to care about what's right and just. He wants us to hate sin. But it's not our job to go about punishing people by slandering them, by mocking them. That's not our job. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can see this quite clearly there in a different context. There in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth for not caring about justice enough when it comes to matters inside the church. That is, there was someone who was sexually immoral among them, and yet the church didn't do anything. They just let the person be. They ought to have given this person accountability to have rebuked him, to restored him with love and grace, but they just basically ignored his sin. And so Paul then, he says something that's, that's interesting in verses 9 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. He said to you, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's not your job to judge the people in the world. That is God and the government's job. On the other hand, you can see there is someone that you're supposed to judge. There are people that you should be concerned about their behavior and go and tell them, and that's the other people in this room, your fellow believers in the local church. We do have a responsibility to each other, and not out of arrogance, not out of anger or a desire to punish, but of a desire to love and encourage and restore. We ought to look at each other's behavior and see how we can, as Hebrews 10 says, stir one another up to love and good deeds. If you want to be on the lookout for sin, uh, for weakness, look at your brothers and sisters in a spirit of love and see how you can help them, how you can encourage them. It, however, is not our job to go and look at the sins of the world and get more and more angry and dwell on that continually. That's not what we're supposed to do. Indeed, that's what what we can be tempted to do. We can look at the news of the world, we can look at all the evil and atrocities, and we can just get more and more angry and discontent. It's not really a good use of time. Uh, as an extreme example, let's, let's think about the unspeakable atrocities done by Hamas on October 7th. Indeed, the, those, those acts, they deserve our, our anger, our hatred. It was, it was awful. It was evil. And They deserve every ounce of punishment that God and state bring upon them. But those Hamas soldiers, yes, they're so wicked and they deserve punishment from God and the government. But we also ought to feel compassion for them. What sad people. What a sad existence that they would feel that it was okay, it was a good idea to go and hurt innocent people like that, to kill them, to slaughter them. Their lives are miserable. Their lives are nothing. And soon they'll die and they'll face punishment from God. Yeah, they, they, they deserve our condemnation. They deserve the punishment they get. But we as Christians also ought to have compassion on them. Why? 
Because, but for the grace of God, you could have done the same things. It's not that you are naturally better than them. Acts such as theirs ought to humble us. That's what human nature can do. That's what happens when the evil in hearts is brought to hands, when evil desires are carried out. We ought to look at that and be reminded, that's the kind of people we were. We had wicked, destructive thoughts in our hearts. And it's only by God's grace that we never acted them out in such a miserable, awful way. And even more, we're so grateful that God has saved us. And that brings us to point number two. Uh, as Paul, he transitions here in verse 3 to give the reason why we ought to be respectful and kind and gentle to the world. And that's because of point number two, our common misery. Why must we be so good and kind to sinners? Simply put, because we can't be hypocrites. We can't be like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, who's forgiven hundreds of millions of dollars, but can't forgive his fellow servant $50. After all of you've done in your life, all of the sin that you did, how could you judge the world? How could you judge your fellow sinners? You were just like them. You know what it means to act like they did. You know their misery. We must be compassionate, indeed empathetic towards sinners. We know what it's like to be lost and deceived and wicked. And now there is some confusion about uh, this topic today. There's a lot of Christians who that's their calling card to be the compassionate and empathetic Christians who understand the sin of the world and and don't condemn sinners in the world. And indeed, there's these people who it's their calling card in a lot of ways. I think they're incorrect because what they do is the way that they see being compassionate and empathetic to sinners is minimizing the sins of the world by saying, yeah, divorce, yeah, it's technically wrong. It's not really that big of a deal. Homosexuality, promiscuity, greed, alcoholism, drug use, yeah, they're bad, but they're not really that bad. And not only do they minimize the sin of the world, but to make their point, they then exaggerate the sin of their fellow Christians. They say, yeah, sure, they're, the world's promiscuous, and, and that's bad, but listen, Christians are mean sometimes. We're basically all the same. We have no right to judge people. We're just as bad as them. That's not at all, though, actually what Paul says. Notice, Paul does not inspire compassion by saying the world, they're not actually that bad. Remember, they just make mistakes sometimes. No, look at verse 3. This is a complete, full-throated declaration of total depravity, of the wickedness and evil of humanity. He says that humanity is foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. They pass their days in malice and envy. They are hated by others. That is despicable, and they hate one another. Paul does not at all minimize the sin of the world. It's wrong to downplay the injustice and wickedness of the world. That's not what we do. We call a spade a spade. We call darkness darkness. That's actually the remarkable thing about Christianity, is that we can say straight up that is absolute sin and wickedness and injustice and you deserve punishment. But on the other hand, I still love you and I still care for you and I'm still going to work for your good. If you can only have compassion and kindness to people when you have deluded yourself in your mind into thinking that they're actually not that bad, then you don't know how to have compassion like God. God doesn't have compassion on us by saying, yeah, they're not that bad. Actually, no, he looks at all of our wickedness and evil, and he still loves us. He says, yes, they are my enemy, 
I still love them. And that's what we're called to do, not minimize the sin of the world, to say it is what it is, but I still love them. I'm still going to respect them. I'm still going to be kind to them. Furthermore, Paul does not exaggerate the sin of fellow Christians. He doesn't say, for we are also foolish, disobedient, etc., etc. What does he say? He he says we were once that way. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. And there's nothing wrong, and indeed it would be wrong to do otherwise, nothing wrong with saying that the church is morally superior to the world. That's just simply sound doctrine. That's what the Bible teaches. God saved a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. To say that, that the church is just as bad as the world, that's basically to correct, contradict Jesus. He says that he's going to purify his church. He says that we're going to do good. And indeed we do. There's nothing arrogant to say that by God's grace, he has made us new people who can do genuinely good and righteous things. And in that way, yes, we are morally superior to the world. But again, there's no arrogance in that. Why? Because we were just like them. And the reason that we are better now is not because of anything we did. It's because of God's grace. He loved us. We had nothing, and he gave us everything. It would be like a boy who, say at the age 10, was taken from an orphanage to a new family. He would still feel compassion for his friends who were still in the orphanage. Even though he's not an orphan anymore, he knows what it means to be an orphan. He feels bad for them. He has compassion on them. He has kindness. It's the same way. We're not like the world anymore. We have been changed. We have been made new. But we still have compassion on them. So in this somewhat paradoxical way, in Paul's mind, total depravity is actually the doctrine that inspires compassion to the world, rather than the opposite. Why? Because it correctly portrays the utter misery of humanity. Yes, people sin and fight and defraud, but they don't benefit from it. These people aren't happy. They're not joyful. They are losing. They are dying. They're suffering. All their lives and into eternity, they are sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. They are sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. Furthermore, total depravity teaches us that the same nature which causes every atrocity and crime of history is the nature which all of us have, all of us were born into. Therefore, we can never look down on arrogance or malice at other people, knowing, yeah, I was the same way. I'm not especially good. And then finally, total depravity actually inspires compassion because it sets our expectation. As you go and deal with the sinners in your life, go knowing they are sinners. They they are dead in their sins. They are deceived by Satan. They are deceived by their flesh. Know ahead of time that they are going to be foolish. They are going to be selfish. They are going to sin. So don't be surprised when they do that. Expect that. And so indeed, the next time a sinner offends you, remind yourself of what they are as unregenerate sinners, and most of all, remind yourself of who you used to be. That's what Paul does there in verse 3. He goes through this list of, of what we used to be. And as we go through it, what I'd ask you to do is indeed think about your life before Christ. Think about how lost you were. Think about how these words apply to you in different ways. Paul says first that that we were foolish. That is, we were ignorant of how to live. We were stupid. We we thought things were worth our time that are are worthless. 
Remember what God said to Jonah, that there were 120,000 people in Nineveh who didn't know their right hand from their left. That's how foolish we were. That's how lost we were. Second, Paul says, we, are, we were disobedient. We had a compulsive desire to transgress. Do you remember all the small rules you broke simply because you wanted to break rules, because you wanted to assert your authority? Is that a good life? No, it wasn't. Next, Paul says, we were deceived. We were deceived by Satan, sinners, our own sin. Do you remember how before you were a Christian, when you were lost, do you remember how people lied to you? Do you remember how you believed false religions and false philosophies? Do you remember how you were tricked? Do you remember how you lied to yourself, how you were deceived by your own sin, how you ignored what was so obvious? Do you remember that? Do you remember being enslaved to sin? Do you remember knowing that something was ruining your life, was hurting the people you loved, but you just simply couldn't stop? Do you remember being enslaved to your sin? Next, Paul uses this, uh, this great phrase. He says, passing our days in malice and envy. That's, that's what life was like before Christ, right? We didn't love people. We were envious. We were hateful. We were sad when others did well. We were happy when they fell. As Ecclesiastes 4 puts it, I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also was vanity and a striving after wind. It was an empty life, wasn't it? constantly motivated by malice and envy. And finally there in the ESV, it says, hated by others. And that phrase, I think a good translation would just be despicable. That is, we did things that deserved other people's hatred, and indeed we were then hated. Uh, Some of you can probably remember the shame of doing something that deserved others' scorn and hatred, and knowing that you deserve that. You deserve to be scorned by them. You, you betrayed them. You did something wicked. Do you remember that? And finally, Paul says, we hated one another too. That, that was our life. Others hated us and we hated them. What an awful existence. We were in a hell on earth, headed towards the, the actual hell. We are compassionate to the world because we once shared in their misery. We know what it means to be so lost and empty and deceived and enslaved and angry and hateful. So we have compassion because we can commiserate with them. Most of all, though, we are compassionate because we have seen in our own lives the very greatest act of compassion. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. He saved us from all that misery and wickedness and evil. He was the one that we were disobeying. He was the one that we opposed. He was the one that we were so blind that we couldn't see him, though his glory was all around us. He was the one who had compassion and kindness to us, and he loved us even when we were his enemies. The only reason that we no longer live such lives of destruction and emptiness and sorrow is because of the goodness and kindness of God. And it was not because we deserved it. That's what Paul says emphatically. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Therefore, your standard for loving others can't be, well, they need to do works of righteousness. They need to repent. They need to be good to me and then I'll love them. No, that's not how God treated you. He loved you while you continued in your sin and did nothing right. That's how we are now called to love others. We are to love them even when they continue to sin against us. 
Even when you go out from here and you say, yeah, I'm going to love that person, and you go and you do something nice, and they just push it back in your face, you need to keep loving them and keep being kind to them because that's what God did to us. It was by his mercy. Now, this whole passage, and especially verses 4 to 7, it's, it's beautiful, it's poignant, it's theologically rich, and strictly speaking, it's, all this detail is a bit unnecessary. Paul could have simply said, you are to love others because God loved you. But he goes into all this detail about how exactly we were saved and all the blessings we have received. And I believe Paul's point is he doesn't just want to convince us with the facts. He wants to convince our heart. He wants to describe all the detail of our salvation so that we would be humbled. We would remember our salvation. we think, yes, how could I ever be arrogant or condescending or disrespectful to one of these sinners that I was once like? How could I not show such compassion and love to these sinners when I was just like them? And when God showed me such compassion, how could I ever do otherwise? So Paul goes into detail about how much grace the triune God has showed in our salvation. There's there's six things he says about our salvation. First, he says that we receive the washing of regeneration. That's there in verse 5. That is, we were living in this awful condition, enslaved to our sin, headed to hell, And just like that, we were given a new start, new life, a new birth, a second chance, a restart. And all that we used to be was washed away. It was deleted. Our criminal file was erased. Our chains were broken. Our filthiness was removed. And we are a new person. We are a new creation now in Christ. That old life has passed away and the new has come. Second and similarly, We were renewed by the Holy Spirit ever since that day when all of your filthiness was washed away and you were given a new life. You have been renewed every day by the Holy Spirit inside of you. Though your outer man has been wasting away, your inner man has been renewed day by day. You are becoming more and more alive. You are becoming more and more like Christ. And third, Paul says that the Holy Spirit, which now gives us life, has been poured out on us richly. We receive this new life that we have by God himself coming into us. That's how we now live as new creations. It's because God's spirit has come into our hearts. And I, I'm sorry that I don't have better words to express the beauty of this. That God has poured his very own spirit into your heart and that is which now gives you spiritual life. It's the same as how God has given you natural life by breathing into Adam and that being passed on to you. So now we live by God breathing his Holy Spirit into us. And his life is what animates our formerly dead hearts. And just as a side note, uh, the language of asking God for a fresh pouring out of the Spirit, a new anointing of the Spirit for more of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's just wrong. Uh, The intention might be good, but... That phrasing, it's, it's contradicting Scripture. God has said that he's already poured out his Spirit on you richly. He didn't hold any of the Holy Spirit back. You have God already abundantly inside of you. Indeed, we need to submit to the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit as we let him control our lives. But you don't need any more of the Holy Spirit than you have now. Fourth, It says that the Father gave his own life to us in the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. That is, it was only by the death and resurrection of Christ could the Father pour his Spirit into our lives to give us a new life. 
And I hope you can see here, indeed, the, the beautiful Trinitarian description of our salvation here. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all play this role in bringing us back to life from our spiritual death. So now, Paul says, we are justified by grace. We are right in God's eyes perfectly and forever because of his loving gift of salvation. And because we have received this gift of justification, we are now heirs of eternal life. Our future is perfect and full of infinite joy. Our past was awful, wasn't it? It was miserable. It was evil. But our future is beautiful. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We will receive eternal blessing with him. And so now we live a life of joy because of the hope that we have. We have indeed undergone the most amazing transformation and deliverance by God's grace. And now I I want to address those of you in here who, though, have not been changed by God's grace. I know there's some of you in here who do not believe in Christ, and I hope that when you read Titus 3, verse 3, you read that description. I hope it rings true. I hope you can see the truth of that, that that's how sorry your life is. I hope you feel that conviction. I hope you feel that guilt. And if you do, Know that God is standing ready, full of compassion and kindness. No matter how much guilt you have accrued throughout your life, God will wash it all away. He will forgive it all through Christ's death. No matter how strongly you may feel that evil is in your life, you may think, I can't repent. I have followed my sin too long. God's grace can break those chains. He can set you new. He can wash away all of that filthiness. Come to him. He is full of compassion. He will run to you with compassion. And then finally, to my brothers and sisters, as we start this new year, first of all, be inspired by God's kindness to you when you had nothing. Remember your past state. Be humbled by that. Remember God's love to you. And then go and show that same compassion and kindness to the unbelievers, to the sinners in your life. Who can you do that to? Who are the sinners in your life who make your life so hard, who cause you such pain? Who are the ones that continually surprise you and break your heart by their selfishness and foolishness? I encourage you, I know it's hard. Keep loving them. Keep being patient to them. Keep being kind and gentle. Do not attack them. Do not return evil for evil, but return evil with good. Let me close by our Lord's words from Matthew 5, verse 44 to 46. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, please remind us of your salvation. Remind us of our sin, Lord, not not to bring us shame or guilt, but to remind us of your amazing grace that you saved us from such a life. Even more, Lord, remind us of the hope that we have, of the salvation we have, which would give us such joy now. And let that be the model of compassion and grace and kindness that we show to the unbelievers in our lives. Please help us. Amen.
Now, if you'd please stand for the benefic- the benediction. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and evermore. Amen. Thank you.